previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. It's not like the perception that we all had about Kirby Puckett and then you find out, oh boy, he is not a legit good guy. From Delaware, almost live, this is the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Welcome to episode 42 of the Sports Refuge, the weekly interview show where guests discuss their connection with sports. I'm your host, Earl Holland. I hope you enjoyed our previous episode featuring a compilation of interviews with the crew from the Movies in a Meal podcast. And my hope is that in the future, I can provide similar compilations based on a variety of topics focusing on journalism, sports, and much more. For this episode, my guest is Bree Jackson, reporter and White House correspondent for Nexstar Media Group. Prior to covering the goings-on in the White House, Bree worked in various locales including Virginia and Salisbury, Maryland, where I first met her during my time as a reporter. In this episode, I talk with Jackson about how she found her interest in journalism, as well as what it's like covering the White House. We'll also discuss Breed's experience playing Division I women's basketball at the University of Maryland, as well as how she got into running following her basketball days. And now, here's my interview with Breed Jackson. This week, my guest is Breed Jackson. She is a White House correspondent for Next Star Media, and she has a very unique and extensive background and resume. Not only is she covering politics and covering it at one of the biggest news markets there is, Washington, D.C., but she has a background of playing Division I women's basketball at the University of Maryland. And in addition to that, she is an avid runner. And I am glad to have you on the show this week, Bree. Thank you so much for coming on the Sports Refuge, and I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me, Earl. It's, it's an honor to talk with you. I first met you as a reporter at WBOC in Salisbury, Maryland. And the first thing, just for some of our audience, just to get an idea, how did you get an interest in journalism? Uh, That's a good question. I think um, I was always a good writer. um, And then my mom was actually a journalist. Uh, She was a professor and a journalist. So I think some of it just came following in her footsteps. But when I was at the University of Maryland, one of the assistant coaches at the time, Christy Winter Scott, uh, was was doing broadcast journalism, and so um, I I started to get an interest in broadcast journalism by watching her and just taking tips from her, um, uh, you know, taking sports tips from her, and then also just journalism tips. I know you talked about your your mom having experience in journalism. Did you feel like you were an automatic natural once you started the curriculum? Uh, no, not really. I think, you know, journalism is one of those fields, uh, in particular, I think broadcast journalism is one of those fields where um, you learn by experience. It's really hard to get a feel for what uh, or how to do the field until you're out there doing it. So I always thought I was a good writer or it seemed I was a good writer, but uh, I don't know if it necessarily prepared me for broadcast journalism. Was broadcast journalism always your straightforward path? Did you think about print journalism? Did you think about any other routes? Uh, That's a good question. To be honest, I don't don't remember. I don't know. Actually, um, yeah, I guess part of it was um, I was able to get in a behind-the-scenes job at WJLA there in Washington, D.C., and so I think that just helped me get my foot in the door to a journalism establishment, and I think that's really what put me on the – the broadcast path was that's the first place I really got introduced to a newsroom. So had it been, you know, was I able to get an internship at the Washington Post or somewhere like that, it could be, it could have been a completely different story, but I wouldn't necessarily say I was drawn to 
broadcast over print. I think I was just able to get my foot in the door in a television newsroom. Working as a White House correspondent, that has to be, I guess, no routine day, especially regardless of who the president is. Mm-hmm. What is a normal day like as a White House correspondent? Well, for uh, us at Next Star Media Group, it's a lot of it is you know just going based off of with this particular administration. Um, sometimes it's based off the president's tweet. You never know what to expect. I think covering the White House as well as just Capitol Hill right now, there's always something happening. So uh, we you know typically come in thinking we're going to be covering one story and the day just gets turned around off of either a comment that's made or a tweet that's put out there. So it's definitely uh, unusual times compared to the way that uh, people, I think, were used to covering uh, the White House or covering Capitol Hill. But I think in a way, it's it's just the sign of our times. It's just, you know, with, with Twitter, with social media, people want information faster, and you're also able to get information out there faster. So um, I think it's just a reflection of our time that news stories are always changing uh, when it comes to covering this administration. What is a normal White House press briefing like? Uh, I don't know. You, I, it's hard to tell because there hasn't been one in, I think, over 100-something days. <laughs> um, so it, I, it's hard to tell um, what it's going to be like moving forward or if it's really going to happen. Um, even though we haven't been having briefings, your traditional briefings, um, I think one thing that's happened is that people do have access uh to President Trump. I think President Trump has gotten to this routine um, when he's going out on a trip or he's leaving to go out on Marine One. They'll have reporters gathered on the South Lawn waiting to talk to him, and he'll come out and talk to reporters for, you know, for anywhere between a few minutes to 30 minutes or so. So uh, it seems like that for right now has replaced your typical White, uh, White House briefings where you're having briefings in a briefing room. Uh, just seems like the president, when he you know is in the mood to talk, he's he's been pretty willing to come out and talk to reporters uh, on those White House South Lawn gaggles. One of the biggest questions I had is, what time does your day normally start, especially as a White House reporter? When does it begin, and how long does it last? Uh, it starts whenever you wake up, <laughs> because I, I know for me, um, it, it starts when you know I wake up. I, I check Twitter. I check t- I check t- Twitter to see if I've missed anything, to see if the president's tweeted. A lot of times he does tweet first thing in the morning. Um, so it really starts, you know, once you get up and then before I go to bed, I'm also checking feeds, checking our email listings, um, checking, you know, pool reports just to see, try to get an idea of what we can expect will be the, the news for the next day. Um, but I... You know, I think with any covering politics, covering the Hill, covering the White House, it's just there aren't really any set hours. You're always you're always on. This is a fill in the blank answer. To be a White House correspondent, you have to have what? You have to have guts, guts or grit, whatever you want to call it. I think you, just to be a good reporter, period, you just have to have, uh, you know, kind of guts and grits and be willing to ask tough questions if you're given an opportunity and then also willing to be persistent and trying to get your question out there. Now, I know, especially in a climate, I've asked a lot of uh, former journalists, current journalists as well, in the environment where the whole fake news era and moniker comes around, how do you try to let people know, your your viewers and everyone else, people who read on the internet, to know that 
what you're doing, of course, is legitimate, is accurate, it, it's concise, it's it's truthful. I think it's just trust, and people, you know, just once you've developed that trust with viewers, it's keeping that trust. So it's also just being a good journalist and being a fair journalist. People may not always like what you're reporting, but if it's fair, I think they they have to understand that whether you're supporting the president or you're opposed to the president. Uh, I think if someone's just giving, you know, these are the facts and here's what was said, uh, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to, to contend with that. Do you feel, especially now in this environment where we're always trying to get the sound bite, where you have to be a little more cautious and, and playing a little more of the quote in context, just to not worry to incite people saying, Oh, this is fake news or, Oh, this is out of context. Um, I think, you know, I don't know if it's just leaving things in, it's just putting things into perspective, making sure that either if you're not playing the whole soundbite, making sure you are fairly writing into that soundbite to make sure it's portraying exactly what was said. So there should never be shortcuts in journalism. And I don't think, I think for most people, there weren't, there aren't, um, you know, shortcuts that, that they're taking. But I think this is just that emphasis where you're double, triple checking things to make sure that you're not misconstruing what was said. Being in Washington, D.C., after having stops in Roanoke and, and prior to that Salisbury, Maryland, what was the, I guess, ascension like, especially moving from market to market to finally get back to close to home? It was tough. It, it was. It, it's hard, um, you know, when you're moving through those smaller markets, but it's definitely good training. I think it's moving in particular somewhere like Salisbury because WBOC is just a great station um, and just a shout out to them because it's several people covering the White House right now, whether it's Hallie Jackson, Weijia Jang for other organizations, they came from WBOC. So that's a good stomping ground um, because they do great journalism there. And so I think going through, you know, covering like city city politics, state politics, and building up to being able to cover national politics, that's good because you're learning the you're learning how to cover politics in a smaller area before you make that jump to try to cover it in a larger area because it's important to just be able to have that grasp of politics. I know, especially I feel like uh, having experience in radio and especially in print, I feel more so radio and television. Do you feel that it is as small as a fraternity as it is where you, like you said, you mentioned Ouija and you mentioned Hallie and all those people being able to see them again, especially doing the same thing that you do? I mean, yes, I think it, it definitely is. And I think what one of the biggest things I noticed, because even working in smaller markets, you see a lot of um, rotation. You know, you see a lot of people coming in and coming into the market um, and then leaving after two years. What I've noticed here on Capitol Hill, surprisingly, it is a small group. There's a small group of people that are committed to just really covering politics and covering politics well. And that takes time. It takes time. It takes building sources, building trust. Um, And so I don't think you see as much rotation as you may see in a smaller market. So it is more of a small fraternity or somewhat of a fraternity where people feel as though you've made it to this point. You deserve to be here and we're all in this together because in particular in times now where there's attacks on journalism and and attacks on journalists, um, I think now more than ever, it's just important that journalists are sticking together and just, you know, looking out for each other and holding each other accountable. 
And uh, especially we talk about the attacks on journalists. And I know that I had a couple of former co-workers at Daily Times who were there at the at the Capitol Gazette, uh, Rachel Pacella and, and Phil Davis. They were there when everything sort of went down. And that was just sort of a crazy experience. I And I admit I haven't reached out to them since it's happened because that's sort of a subject where you don't know how to really sort of uh, grasp that and ask them, like, you know, what was it like? I, I, I don't understand. I mean, I feel like when you see that either that former uh, comrades and former coworkers are under attack and, and it, it seems like it's just such a, a thing that seems so surreal. It absolutely does. And I think it's just one of those things where you sympathize with people, you understand, because um, even, you know, mentioning the, the shooting at the Capitol Gazette, um, when I heard about that, it was just, it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking for people, anyone in the journalism field. And I, I take it back to, um, when I was in Roanoke, Virginia, and there was the on-air shooting of Allison Parker, that sticks with me today. You know, and I've, I've interviewed her dad several times, and he's come to Capitol Hill to talk about gun violence and to talk about um, regulations on the internet um, because it, it, it hits close to home. You know, as journalists, you cover a lot of stories, you talk with a lot of families um, that have been affected by violence. But then, when it happens to you know, the industry, when it happens in the industry to journalists, it, it kind of sinks in a little differently. When speaking of that, that incident, um, unfortunately, some of the video actually had got out on the internet before it had been scrubbed. But um, what were your thoughts when you, when everything, when you heard it all go down or let alone if you saw any of that footage? It was terrifying. Uh, it was terrifying. It was, you know, it was scary because, um, you know, you, you see someone that's doing something they love to do. And uh, in particular, Allison Parker was a uh, morning show reporter. And that's, you know, that's the person you look to for, to you know, wake you up in the morning with a smile on their face. And, um, you know, it's just, it's, it, it's, it was just horrifying. It was heartbreaking. It was horrifying. And, knowing that that could have been anyone because, you know, reporters do those morning live shots every single day. And anyone out there that wants to know where they are, where they're going to be for the next, you know, two to three, four hours, um, you know, can turn on the TV and, and do something like that. So it's just, that's, it's just a tragedy. From your stops in Salisbury and Roanoke, what are the biggest uh, lessons that you learned from each one of those stops? the biggest lessons that I learned, the importance of community. I think because both of those areas, because well, there was Salisbury and then I stopped in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina for a little bit and then went to Roanoke. And in each place, um, it was just a sense of community and the importance of a sense of community um, and having people welcome you into their lives as a journalist, welcome you into their homes, whether they're watching you on television. I think it, for me, I learned the importance of building those community connections because being that I was moving around a lot, you know, I could have easily probably or anyone could have easily come into an area and just stayed disconnected from that area knowing that they'd only be there a couple of years. But um, I just, I, I learned the importance of just really getting to know the people that are in your communities, the issues that they care about. Um, and then you start to care about those issues as well. In popular culture, is there a TV show or, or movie that best represents what your job is like, that most accurately represents what your job is like? Earl, you may have gotten me on that one. I don't <laughs> uh, 
a teen. I mean, I know for, you know for a while they had like the newsroom, and um, you know there was. I mean, I think it's it's hard to say. I mean, and sadly, I think you know what I, I you know I'm kind of old school. I think MTV's the real world may uh, <laughs> may be the best reflection because you know you had you put a, a whole bunch of people in a house together. And they're coming from different backgrounds and different, you know, thought processes. And, um, you know, you're trying to get them to all get along. And I think um, I, I connect that to the journalism field because, you know, we have, in, I know in our newsroom in particular, in our bureau, we have a diverse group. So everyone's coming in from different backgrounds, different life experiences. And we have to, more, you know, tackling stories, we have to try to put all those differences and all those things aside and just get to the straight facts. But sometimes, you know, people see things differently. And in, in particular with politics, people see things differently. So it's important to have all those different viewpoints so that you could tell a well-rounded story. Because if I'm just giving a story from my perspective or your perspective, that's not a well-rounded story. How much do you still shoot your own video, if at all? With the way that our setup is, we do shoot most of our interviews. Um, and then it's different, I think, when it comes to following the White House because a lot of that stuff comes from the pool feeds because they'll have pool cameras, um, like an ABC camera or NBC camera or, or network camera that's shooting the video. So we take that off of the pool feeds. But then if we have a one-on-one uh, -on -one interview with someone from the administration, then, of course, we're you know, going out with a photographer. But then if we are pairing that with maybe, you know, we're doing a story that has... President Trump says something and you want to get lawmaker reaction from maybe, you know, Ben Cardin out of Maryland. And then you want to also get, um, you know, a Republican like Tim Scott out of South Carolina. Sometimes we end up shooting those interviews just because it's easier that way. It's just a straight up shot that, that we're doing. And it's the, it's the nature of media right now. How long have you been covering the White House? For about two years. We've, I've been covering the administration and then Capitol Hill. What was the transition like, especially going from covering uh, different beats to covering the White House? You know, it was challenging. There was no time to have like a learning curve. I think I remember it may have been my second week on the job was when Jim Comey was fired. And so it was just like, you know, there's no training that prepares you to deal with covering those type of issues and it hasn't slowed down ever since. So it's just one of those things where you're thrown into the fire and you just learn to keep up. And now while of course this is a sports podcast, one of the things I definitely want to talk to you about is your athletic background. You yes. were a division one basketball player at the university of Maryland under Brenda freeze. Correct. I was, um, I was part of the transition. Um, Chris Weller was my coach my first three years, and then Brenda was my coach my senior year, and I still keep in contact with her to this day. How did you get interested in playing basketball, and was that the only sport you played growing up? I got into basketball probably just from – I know there was a, a kid that lived across the street from me who had a hoop in his yard, and we started off playing kickball, and then we're just like, hey, we got this hoop here, let's, let's play. Um, and then, you know, I'm 5'9", I've always been – you know, fairly tall. So I think that just came into play, but I just got good at it. You know, um, I just got really good at it. And then, um, you know, growing up, I did play soccer. I tried softball for a little bit, but basketball is the sport that really, really stuck. Now, were you uh, a center power forward at the time or did you always play guard or? 
I actually, all through growing up, uh, up until college, I played in the post, so I was a 4-5, and then once you get to, you know, Division One basketball, 5-9 isn't really tall, like, some of your, most of your guards are, are 5-9, so then that's when I transitioned out to playing more of like a wing player at the University of Maryland, but before that, I was, I was all post moves, um, and just, you know, learned to really just work hard down low. Did you feel like you had to work on your shot, especially making the transition from post to being in a wing? Oh, absolutely. I think that was the, the biggest challenge was that now is, you know, being asked to shoot three-pointers and long-distance shots. Um, and then, you know, it's at that level, it's competitive. So it's one of those things where, you know, you're competing with players on your team because there's only, I think, maybe 10 or 11 slots on our basketball team, but you're competing with players on your team who – have been playing that position for, you know, their entire playing careers from whatever time they started to college. So it was, I mean, it was definitely tough, um, but I just learned to have confidence and stick it out and try to just be as best of a player at whatever position they put me in. I can imagine shooting three-pointers is such a tough thing. I, I couldn't never get the range on a shot. I would always have a shot that would just fall so short or fall wide. What is the key to getting a good three-point shot? Uh, you know what? I'm not the best one to tell you about that because <laughs> I never really got that great at it. Um, but I will say, I think uh, in general, whether it's you know three-pointers, whether it's from the foul line, whether it's a layup, it is that persistence and just practice, practice, practice. It was a lot of, um, and you know, I think it wasn't just me transitioning from post to the wing. Um, other players on the team, we just constantly were, we were gym rats, you know, like we had practice time set up for us, but outside of practice, the key was us getting out into the gym and just practicing doing those shots, like practicing those shots and, and getting better. So the only way you're going to get better at making three-pointers is practicing shooting three-pointers. And then getting, probably getting into the weight room, too. <laughs> I, I always feel, especially I know, especially as an athlete, a college athlete, you know, there's limited set practice times that you can do as a team. How do you try to not, you know, exceed those practice times as a group and just sort of maybe get a uh, maybe impromptu uh, practice with a couple of teammates? Um, I think for us, it was really... Um, just finding, like, you know, on days off, we'd go and shoot around or play pickup. Um, and I think, you know, thinking back, that was, you know, that's what we were there for. We were there to get an education and play sports. So it was, we, we did have, you know, a good amount of downtime. So I, I don't think we really, you know, we didn't really mind finding time to go shoot around because it was what we loved doing. It's, a, it's what we knew. You know, looking back, we were slightly sheltered because, um, I don't know how it is at other schools, but the University of Maryland does a really great job of setting or helping you manage your time and setting your schedule. So we would have classes from maybe 9 to 12 and then have um, time to go eat lunch. And then we have practice from a, set, a certain time and then we'd have a mandatory study hall. And then, you know, we were pretty free. But I think we just tried to keep that kind of camaraderie and we just stuck together. So. I don't know, like in our free time, we just wanted to go play basketball because that's kind of what we enjoyed doing. On the court, what's your go-to move? Oh, man, the hook shot. I got <laughs> I got a hook shot and there's this, I, I don't know what you call it, um, but there's just, we would jokingly call it the Bree Scoop because there was just, um, I learned to do this move where I would kind of spin around someone and literally like, 
scoop the ball, like scoop the shot under their arms. Uh, it was kind of something that I just learned from being a little shorter than some of the other post players. So they'd have their hands up and I was just able to kind of do like a scoop move and get the ball in the basket. So, but definitely that hook shot. It's especially to do a hook shot. There's so many questions I have on that. Can you palm the ball and how difficult is it to really sort of get a good hook shot? I know, especially that seems like that is a lost art phone as well. <laughs> um, for some reason it came natural. I don't know how I learned the hook shot and how I became good at it. It just became the go-to move. And part of it is my hands aren't really that big. So I wasn't able to palm the ball but I have really long arms. And so I think that just helped because, you know, you can, once you get that, that hook up there and can kind of extend, it's just like having those long arms help. So I don't know, for me it was, I don't know how it started, but I just know I was able to really perfect that hook shot. And I think the long arms is what really helped. Was it a baby hook or was it sort of more like the Kareem sky hook where he, he goes full extension? Oh, it was the Kareem skyhook. Like it was, you knew it was coming because it was just like I get the ball. And a lot of times, the the left side of the paint was where I was really good because I could go with the scoop move, um, or I could also go towards the basket. Um, but yeah, it was like it was like a a skyhook for sure. I always feel like, especially when you hear how Kareem shot it, it was so hard to defend a shot like that. I. I feel like the lift of it, I mean, especially because if you try to swat it, the odds are it's going to end up being a goaltend. But, I mean, yep. would you attest to how accurate and how true that is? Uh, I think, for me, I think once I got, thinking back, once I got the ball in position to do that, uh, that hook shot, one of two things was going to happen. Either I was going to get the bucket or I was going to get fouled by someone that was trying to block the hook shot because it creates distance between you and the other player if you, you know, can really get it down. And I think, you know, some of it is, I, I think I also use my offhand to, um, not, I don't want to say, you know, push off on the other player, but I used it to create that distance <laughs> so that it was kind of like they really had to stretch to try to block it. Um, so, yeah, I think it's an, if you can nail that, I would suggest, you know, to younger kids, that's money in the bank all the time. I know you mentioned uh, arm length and wingspan and things like that. What else do you feel like you need to have at least good uh, positioning for a hook shot? Um, I think number one, just kind of like, um, I don't know if it's more so your leg strength, but just really getting low and being able to get in position because it all comes down from you being able to post up, get that position so that they can get the ball to you and then being able to bounce off of that so that you can, you know, get in the air and, and, and kind of get that sky hook in. But so I'd say outside of just having the sky hook, it's having, you know, good position, getting low so that you can get in position to get the ball and then being able to just take off from there. What would you say is the highlight game of your basketball career, either high school or college? Highlight game. You know what? There's a couple of games that I played in high school that, just really stood out to me. I think they because they were just tough games. We had some very tough competition. Um, I, I went to the Bullet School, and we would often play Sidwell friends. And Sidwell had some some really good basketball players. They were also volleyball slash basketball players, so they definitely had the hops there. Um, and I remember, I, I think it was my senior year, we played them three times, and each game was close. And so I think. It wasn't even just necessarily one game. It was just 
a series, always playing them. That series of playing playing Sidwell Farms was just something that I just always remembered because you knew it was going to be a tough game. Would you say your game was predicated on power or was it speed or the combination of both? Um, I would say it was mainly scrappiness. It wasn't even, <laughs> I wasn't the strongest player. I wasn't the fastest player. I was just the player that truly was going to annoy the heck out of you and never give up. It was just like, you know, I kind of had a, even when I'm trying to rebound, even if players were taller than me, I kind of would do this move where it was, if I could just get fingertips on the ball, I basically would ta- try to tap it back to myself. Because um, I knew, like, with other players that were just relying on just straight talent, I didn't have that. I was just a hardworking player and then used whatever skills I did have to, to supplement that. But um, a lot of it was just I was a good, like, scrappy player that was just going to annoy the heck out of other players because it was just like this girl... She just won't stop moving. She won't stop cutting through the lane. She won't stop, like, crashing the boards. What would you say? I'm, how much of the professional game, men's and women's, do you get the chance to watch? Oh, man, you know, I don't really get to watch uh, as much as I like to. I definitely watch the playoffs, whether it's for NBA or WNBA. Um, and it's great to see. I think I try to catch some Mystics games here in Washington, several Maryland players. Um, former Maryland players play for the Mystics, so I do try to get out to those games. Um, and and every once in a while, um, I'll try to get to a Wizards game. Uh, they haven't really been that good lately. <laughs> lately. <laughs> so, but yeah, I don't really get to. I don't. I think with work, I don't really get to just watch as much as I'd like to. Were there any aspirations for possibly playing pro ball overseas? No, I mean, yeah, you know, that's something that thinking back, I wish I probably. Um, maybe looked into a little bit more. I just think it was never on my radar. I think, you know, looking back, I definitely know there are certain players that were on the team that that had that goal. They wanted to be, you know, they wanted to go to the WNBA. They wanted to play overseas. Um, I was good enough to play at Maryland, uh, but even going there, I always knew in my mind, um, you know, I was going to go into the you know, traditional workforce afterwards. As we make the transition, especially going from your basketball career to running, how did you find running and what was that transition like? And do you feel like your basketball experience and background helped you as you started to get into running? Uh, you, you know, it's funny because I did not like running when I was playing basketball. And I think um, uh, it wasn't until I really got into the journalism field that I got serious about running. And some of that was just because you know, moving to um, new locations. And in particular, I think I really started getting to it in, in Salisbury, Maryland, because on the weekends I'd go to Ocean City and just run on the beach um, every, you know, every weekend. That's what I'd do. And then just lay on the beach for a couple of hours and then go back home. But, yeah, it was it's like two different things, man. Like basketball players, we don't typically do a lot of long-distance running. You know, it's kind of those short court sprints, and that's all you get. So, it was a tough transition, um, but I love that feeling of being out there and just getting a good sweat in. And uh, there's just something about you know exercising like that, whether it's basketball or running, that I just love. What was the, I guess, toughest transition from going from a novice runner to becoming an advanced runner? Learning how to um, pace yourself um, and to try to keep a steady pace because with some of these – when I got into like doing races, 
you know, people take off at the start lines that you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to take off with them, not knowing that, you know, not everyone needs to take off. And I didn't need to take off <laughs> in the very beginning. So I think for me, learning to pace myself, and then also learning the importance of nutrition when it came to running, because I just remember there was one race where I just really got, I got really bad leg cramps. And part of that just had to do with, I wasn't very well hydrated. I had like maybe, you know, pizza, fries, and coffee, like before the run. So it was, <laughs> so it was, it was like, you know, I was setting myself up for disaster, but I just didn't know better. I just didn't think about, um, you know, I didn't think about the nutrition aspect of it. What was the first race that you ran? The first race that I ran was the Myrtle Beach half. Um, and I remember some of the coworkers that I had there. I ran it with some of my coworkers at the TV station there. Um, and yeah, during the run, it's cause they start the half marathoners and the marathoners off at the same time, or at least you cross paths. And I just remember we were running and saying, we'll never do marathons. We were just like, those people are crazy. And then I think within the next year or so, I ended up running the Myrtle beach marathon and that was my first marathon. So, uh, a lot of good memories in Myrtle beach with, with, when it came to getting to the race scene. What was the feeling like after that race? How are you feeling? What really happens to the body once you finish running just a half marathon compared to a marathon? <laughs> um, I think with the half marathon, I'm trying to think. We, cause when I, I ran it with a friend, so it was kind of, it, I, there was a, a feeling of exhilaration because we were just like, oh my God, I can't believe we just did that. You know, that's awesome. Um, and then there was some soreness, like maybe, you know, the next a couple of days later, just because it was the first time we had ever run that distance. Cause I think during our training, we maybe did 11 miles. Um, we never really ran the whole 13, um, going to training. So I don't know. I just remember a feeling of excitement and it opened the door to say, you know, I could do this again. And so then that's when we started signing up for more races, but it was definitely a good feeling. How did you build up your endurance, especially, like you said, uh, not running the full 13 miles, going up to 11? How did you subsequently build up that endurance to to eventually take on a half marathon and then a full marathon? Uh, I started running with um, uh, a running group, or at least I got connected with a running group. Um, and we just started, like, gradually increasing our mileage. So, like, every Saturday we would meet and – um, and do a long run together. So like maybe one week it was 10 miles and then we'd come back the next week and do 12 miles. And then maybe the week after that dropped back down to eight miles, but it was just kind of, it was, it was following a plan. I just wasn't going out there aimlessly. Cause I think that's what, that's what probably hurt me, uh, the first time, um, when I was just, when I got leg cramps and others, um, was just that I didn't really have a plan. I was just kind of doing what I thought to do. How many marathons have you run? And really, what are some of the most notable marathons you've run in? Um, I've run 10. Um, and I don't know how many halves I've done just because I feel like, you know, well, like I've, in a way I kind of lost count because a lot of times we run those halves as part of training for marathons. Um, but um, I think anyone that's able to do it, um, you know, one of the most notable is uh, I qualified for Boston and, and ran the Boston Marathon in 2017. Um, and I was able to qualify at the DC Rock and Roll, which is one of my favorite races. I ran that one twice. And I also did the half marathon for the DC Rock and Roll because it's just a cool, you know, it's a cool race. It goes through DC 
the Marine Corps Marathon is cool. Um, but my favorite, uh, or one of my favorites, was the last one I did. Um, it was in December, uh, and I went to Thailand. My dad went with me, and we did um, what well, we he went with me. Didn't run it, but it was a marathon in Thailand. It was my first like international marathon. Do you listen to music while you run? What's the perfect way to get you into the right mindset for running? Yes, I do. I like uh, just sometimes it depends. If I'm going for a faster run, I'll listen to music. Um, like this morning, I think I was listening to Oprah's Super Soul. Like a lot of times, I'll listen to uh, inspirational podcast. Um, and then sometimes I do listen to just the news. I'll listen to some NPR podcast while I'm running just to catch up on on what I've missed. But a lot of times it is it just it, for me, it depends on the run. Most of the runs I do during the week are in the morning, so I just want to kind of get some good positive vibes going. So I'll listen to some type of inspirational or at least, you know, motivational, um, either, you know, like podcast. Is there a particular race you're still looking forward to running that you haven't uh, met yet? Yeah, I'm doing uh, New York in November. So um, New York's one. And then I just hear great things about Chicago. So I, I'd love to run Chicago and then eat some of that good food afterwards. <laughs> What is the ideal running conditions, at least for you? What do you feel like are the most ideal running conditions? You know, if it could be maybe 40 to 50 degrees outside, that's perfect for me. I'm a much better cooler weather runner than I am like anything in the 70s, and I just get too warm. You know, I, I get hot easily, whereas something in the 40s or 50s, that's perfect running conditions to me. What have been some of the uh, biggest benefits from uh, especially running in your mind? Uh, I mean, uh, there's, you know, definitely the health benefits. Um, and then there's also just the people that I've met along the way. Um, I tend to connect with running groups no matter where I live. And so um, for me, that's just been, it's been like a sense of community. Like earlier we talked about how covering politics, there's this fraternity. Well, I think with running, it's the same thing. It's, you know, you, whether you're running with a running group or, uh, you know, you're just out there running on, like, for me, like the National Mall, I, I tend to see some of the same people all the time. And so you kind of, you know, give each other that runner's wave um, and just show a mutual respect for each other. During your time in Salisbury, you were a reporter as well. I was wondering if you had crossed paths with uh, Vanessa Junkin, who I worked with at the Daily Times. She was a crime reporter. And of course, she's an avid runner as well. I know she does a lot of stuff with Bib Brave and runs a lot of events as well. I know she does a lot of events. I think she's doing the rock and roll or did the rock and roll race. And I just want to know if you guys ever sort of like cross paths. Unfortunately, I don't think we had a chance to cross paths. Um, uh, I think um, I remember back when I was there in Salisbury, I did I did a lot of solo running. I, I wasn't really into the racing there, um, and so I did a lot of runs by myself. So unfortunately, we didn't cross paths, but I would love to try to catch up with her if I'm ever, ever back in that Salisbury area or if she's in the D.C. area running. Oh, yeah, because I know she does. I can't think of the name of the, the running club. I, I had talked to her about it before. But, uh, yeah, because she's part of the run club and it'll hit me once, I think, once the interview ends. But, yeah, I know she's definitely big in the running scene. I think she does uh, a little bit of run, writing for Run Washington, I think. 
I believe. Okay. So yeah, I know she's definitely big on the running scene, especially now. I know she's getting a goal to try to hit a lot of races, of course, in all the states as well. So that's why I was a little oh, curious awesome. about the uh, the running thing. Uh, as we wrap this interview, I do appreciate you being a part of this one, uh, this interview, and I hope to have you back again, talk a little more basketball, talk a few <laughs> more things. And what are some of the best ways people can reach out to you and, and contact you in, in the social media realm? Oh, definitely on uh, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find me under Positively uh, Positively Bree. So that's P O S I T I V E L Y B R I E, uh, and that's my uh, at on whether it's Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. You can find me under Positively Bree, or just type in Bree Jackson, and that's Bree like the cheese. B R I E. <laughs> The positively part, is that just more of a, a moniker that you associate with, especially being a very uh, optimistic person? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you, you have to stay positive, whether it's, uh, you know, in this profession or in your own personal life. It's just, you know, staying positive and staying focused on the task at hand. And in addition to uh, your role as a White House correspondent and, and an avid runner, I mean, what other interest that you had that hey, people will see you maybe around Washington and just say, Hey, I, I know you. <laughs> you know, I mean, that sums it up. I run in the morning, I go to work and then I uh, go to the gym. So <laughs> uh, but no, I think another, in, any other thing is just, you know, I'm very much into my family. Like my dad uh, is here in, in the DC area. My sister's here in the DC area. I have a niece and nephew. My sister adopted twins about two years ago, right? When I moved back to the DC area to cover uh, politics. And so, you know, that's, that's my heart right there. So if I'm not working or not running or working out, I'm spending time with, with family. Is it better sort of being close to home and being in such a big market? I know, especially like you said, working in, in Salisbury and working in Virginia and working in South Carolina as well. Uh, I mean, I think, it, you know, it, it comes to a point where you, you really have to look at, you know, your work life is important, but what really matters. And at the end of the day, I think that's for me and a lot of people, that's family. You know, like I, I definitely enjoyed the journey of living in other places away from family, but this, you know, there's nothing compares to being this close to your loved ones. Well, Brie, I do appreciate it. Thank you very much. And I look forward to having you on again to talk a little more basketball and maybe take a look <laughs> at what your thoughts and predictions and how do you think Maryland, both the men's and women's teams may do? <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, Earl, thanks for having me. And I'm, I'm always going to cheer for my Lady Terps and the guys team as well. That concludes my talk with Bree Jackson, and I'm looking forward to getting her insight on some basketball discussions in the new year. As always, if you know someone who might enjoy this episode or any other previous episodes, please feel free to share. Next time, my guest will be Carmen Frazier, a news producer at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Some of the topics we'll discuss include her experience playing Division I softball at Coppin State University before finishing her college career at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore, how attending a historically black college and university shaped her mindset, and what it's like being in the world of broadcast news. You can find a link to this and other episodes on the Sports Refuge website, or you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, Stitcher, and wherever else podcasts are heard. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge Podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.